0: You're listening to the Faith 2020 Podcast, helping you see 2020 clearly through the lens of faith. Now here's your host, Michael Ware. Storm. It is the Faith 2020 podcast, but it is a torrential downpour out here. <laughs> and so, I always dreamed of DJing uh, Quiet Storm, and so I figured th- this is this is probably going to be my best shot, let's be honest. Uh, and so, <laughs> Boa producer, I'm going to leave it to you, whether to cut it or or keep it. <laughs> Look, it, it is a Busy, hectic time in this primary. The debate stressed me out like I think it stressed many of y'all out. <laughs> I'm sitting there, well, why am I watching this? I got responsibilities and uh, like family and hobbies <laughs> that, that actually make me feel good about life. And here I am. Now, of course, I had to watch the debate so that we could talk about it here on the Faith 2020 Podcast. Uh, so I am just uh, really happy to be here. It is a important week. We have seen things. Like I said, after Iowa and New Hampshire, the way this race was shaping up, uh, things were going to start clarifying after Iowa and New Hampshire. They did. Nevada, we now, uh, Vice President Joe Biden came in uh, second. Bernie Surely that he has a, a, a really uh, a considerable, pretty diverse constituency behind him. He continues to provide reason to doubt that his ceiling is as low as some people, including myself, thought it might be. Although I'd say he hasn't, he hasn't exactly proven it uh, up to this point. Uh, we're going to have a sense on South Carolina and then on Super Tuesday uh, which is just days away. South Carolina votes on Saturday. Of course, they've been having early vote, and then Super Tuesday is is just a few days after South Carolina. We have so much to talk about. Uh, I'm, I'm really not going to go in depth on on the debate. I, I don't think much changed because of the debate. I could pick out a, a few things that caught my eye. I mean, I do think Joe Biden had a strong night. He accomplished what he. What he needed to, I uh, do think Sanders again continues to be able to absorb and move on from hits. One thing he does is he doesn't uh, respond or defend himself really <laughs> when certain attacks come, which is which is interesting. He just uh, he has a way of um, helping to avoid moments that people would grab onto as turning points in the race. Now, some of the Sanders, some of it is significant cautiousness still on behalf of his opponents who seem to not want to necessarily critique Bernie in any sort of trans in a way that represents a fulsome sort of rejection of his candidacy or his policy proposals or I think most importantly, you know, his vision for for the country and for America. And I, I think you have to do that, especially in this environment, if if you want to take down Bernie Sanders. Otherwise, he is the person with the clearest message. And so if you respond to someone who has such a clear point of view with sort of nitpicking and what did you say about Cuba 30 years ago without without – uh, without um, drawing a line between what he said about Cuba to what he what he thinks and believes now, but like, oh, you got Cuba wrong, you know, you, you honeymooned in, it, like, the only reason those criticisms mean something in the context of a Democratic primary, which I'd add is something very different from the general election, but in the Democratic primary, is you have to be able to make a substantive case. Otherwise, it's, internal fighting that seems very personal and detached from people's lives. I will say, I don't think, I think there are serious criticisms to be leveled at Bernie Sanders. Uh, we, you know, the closest has been, you know, talking about (laughs) the fact that his proposed plans add up to, uh, Spending that, you know, dwarfs what the American economy itself produces significantly. Uh, You know, Joe Biden and others pointing out, you know, the fact that he hasn't shown exactly how he's going to pay for all of his proposals. So that's that that comes kind of close. But what that kind of takes as a given is that, like, if we, quote, unquote, had the money. Then what Bernie is saying would be fantastic, and and that's what I'd like to see a little critique on. Um, so we're just going to have to see if you know after Super Tuesday. Uh, I mean, kind of like in two thousand eight. You know, on this show we try and use a history as uh, as as a, as a guide and, and to to be able to draw. You know, in two thousand eight, even going into Super Tuesday. Yes, there were some some real touch points. Yes, there was the back and forth about Bill Clinton saying that this is a fairy tale, the president sort of uh, or Barack Obama sort of pushing back and, 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 but again that, that was that was largely sort of atmospherics. That was about sort of symbolism and sort of personality. But remember when it got to April and like they're heading into Pennsylvania. It turned real serious. <laughs> it got to be about trade trade policy and, and real core to like the fundamental vision of like whose fundamental vision of how politics works and what policies are the best kind of policy proposals to, to pursue. The debate got a lot more fundamental in, in, in 2008 as, as things went on. And so I believe strongly that debate needs to happen. And it needs to happen in the primary, because I guarantee you it will happen in the general. Now, it won't happen because Trump's going to be able to pursue some— Trump himself is going to be able to pursue some sophisticated argument about political philosophy and and policy details. He's going to be more of a blunt instrument. But he is going to pick out things. So, for instance, as I said with Medicare for All, the the major critique has been— and I'm not, you know, I'm talking about Bernie because he's a frontrunner. I'm, I'm not trying to pick on Bernie. This show is primarily w- one that we try and look at the the race as it's developing, not as I wish it was developing, or as certain faith groups wish it was developing. This is, uh, but I do think it's it's worthwhile to to talk about the dynamics of the race. And so one example of that is, like I said, the only really. Substantive critique about Medicare for all has been—it's been its price and the fact that it would take. I, I will add. I should add. You know, the fact that it would take private uh, insurance off the table. And Pete Buttigieg did a pretty good job of of honing in on this in the debate that, that it would. That he, you know, he had that great line about even in. I'm not sure if it hit the way it should have. I, I think you know he kind of didn't do it as cleanly as as he could have because of what was going on, but you know he said you know even in denmark which you know you're you're so fond of bernie and that that I've talked about positively too he said even in denmark they offer the potential for private insurance supplemental private insurance uh, health insurance uh, and that's something that, that you don't even offer. So, so you know, let, let, that that is radical. Uh, I'm not sure if he said that, uh, but 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 that was that was the suggestion. Like you're you're to you're to the left of Denmark. What, what's going on here? I, I thought that was good. So so those have the, been the critiques of Medicare for all so far that I've heard on the debate stage. that have gotten major play, and the private insurance critique gets a little closer to what I think has been missing, which is. You know, th- this idea that I don't think there's been significant discussion of what it would mean for the government to have control and say over that much of our health care system. Uh, the Affordable Care Act was almost killed because, because after they got through dealing with the price and debating about public options and making all the compromises on, on those kinds of policy details – Remember the last seventy-two hours before that vote, the concern was this is going to fail because of abortion, because there were concerns that abortion was going to be funded through Affordable Care Act, which, as I write about in my book, the Government Accountability Office under President Obama, it's an independent office, but just during the Obama administration, I mean, uh, researched and, and found out that despite. The compromise that was made and the commitment that was made by the Obama administration funds were going to abortion. So that's that's a side sidebar. But that whole debate almost killed the Affordable Care Act. And then, of course, the contraception mandate, which was a major election issue in 2012, uh, the kind of thing that I think would have taken down someone who a Democratic candidate that that wasn't the once in in a generation political figure that Barack Obama was. The contraception mandate, of course, was not explicitly in the Affordable Care Act, so it didn't prevent the passage, or at least it didn't become a, a live issue during debate uh, about, about the bill. But after it passed, and after, after people understood that this was going to mean that insurance companies were going to be mandated to cover contraception private insurance. And this is with some some loopholes and some escape hatches and some some exceptions. You know that was a in some ways that's a policy fight that's still going on now. There are still court cases about about the fallout from that. Oh, a, a decade later. Now you think about Medicare for all. Well, what does that mean? Well, the Democratic uh, platform now calls for. Fund, for a, a repeal of the Hyde amendment which means that federal funds go towards abortion well that would apply to medicare for all which will be the single payer it will be the single in other words all health care there would be no no other option than to have health care that pays for abortion because the government will be paying for it you add that to the fact that a lot of these candidates now believe that there should be no restrictions on abortion at all. And look, you have a real live—I mean, right. This is not a show where we talk about. But I'll just say I, I think that's a that's a morally bad policy. It's the kind of policy though it's the kind of policy debate that would really tear at the fabric of the, of this country. If you want, you know, yeah, I, I I didn't plan to go into it. Let's just say the policy moves of the Trump administration that liberals found most morally abhorrent, conservatives would feel the same way about, about that debate. <laughs> so so I'll, I'll leave it at that. The political point to make here is that when you get to a general, when you're facing Donald Trump, yes, he's going to make the point about how much it costs that Bernie doesn't know how he's going to pay for it. But there are also going to be these bigger questions of, do you, do you trust the government to get involved to this extent? And here are the reasons why you shouldn't, because look what Democrats are trying to backdoor through this thing. Uh, look what Democrats are trying to shoehorn. You think this is about, you think that this is getting healthcare, but there's this whole social agenda that's coming with it. So is this about healthcare or is this about some social issues that the American people are much more conflicted on generally? Now, The the Democratic primary field, as it's made up right now, isn't necessarily going to bring up that charge as a critique, which is just the last point I'll make is like the the press has to be asking these questions. But Bernie Sanders is the front runner. And so instead of like this, this horse race, soap opera, you know, what did Sanders say about Cuba? Like, okay, that could be on the table. Maybe it's getting to point into some substance, but how about we talk about like what he's proposing now? Like, like how how about we talk about what's actually in his platform? That is, Megan Mcardle, who's a conservative, wrote in the Washington Post, like Medicare for all is not the most radical thing in Bernie Sanders' platform, and yet when Bernie gets confronted in these debates about, you know, are you worried you're too radical? You know, Bernie says. Well, if it's it's, if it's radical to pay a $15 minimum wage, then I guess I'm a ra- – well, well <laughs> when serious people say that <laughs> what you're proposing is radical, they're not talking about a $15 minimum wage, Bernie. And you know that. Uh, I, I had a fascinating back and forth on Twitter today with uh, Daniel Jose uh, uh, Camacho, who's a thinker I really respect. He's an editor over at Sojourners, has written some really thoughtful essays and he he helps me see issues uh, in a in a broader, helpful way. Uh, I, I talk with I talk with Daniel, and sometimes he won't change my mind on something, but I'll 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 leave a conversation with him and be like oh, there there is this whole piece of this conversation that I wasn't attending to that I need to attend to now. So anyways, plug for him. But we had a little Twitter back and forth today in, in, in the middle of it. We were talking about this Cuba thing because there was an NPR uh, segment on Cuba Uh that Bernie had some positive things to say about what Cuba was able to, to achieve, under Castro was able to achieve regarding literacy rates. And if... You're just looking at literacy rates like it's absolutely true. Castro came in, launched a literacy plan, and literacy rates skyrocketed. Well, as this Quebecer from NPR was saying, well, yeah, but the literacy plan was not like incidental to Castro's authoritarianism. So, so, you know, Sanders responds, look, I think we should be able to say good things about things that are good. And, of course, I reject author- authoritarianism. I reject it everywhere, always have, and dun, dun, dun. Well, this historian was saying, well, look, even even with the, the specific point of progress that you were highlighting, you can't separate out what he was able to do, what, what the Castro regime was able to do with literacy from the authoritarian uh, nature of the overall regime. And so uh, the, the historian, the expert, went, went on to explain that the, the literacy programs, they taught them to read basically uh, using communist propaganda. So, yes, they were learning to read, but uh, they were being indoctrinated at the same time. And and what what they could read was being limited. So they didn't have freedom. To, so their, their literacy was being directed to support the regime, not to support the flourishing of people necessarily. So, so that was basically the, uh, the debate that took place. So the, the media is, NPR is doing segments on that. I, I guess my, my last point here is that, you know, the media has a responsibility to actually uh, preview and press on and ask questions that are going to be relevant, not just Republican attacks or Republican talking points, but what are the debates that are actually, what are the critiques that are going to be made? And what is what is Bernie and all of the other candidates, what are they going to have to explain to the American people about their plans? What are they going to have to defend about their plans? And I am concerned this primary process has been far too insular. Yes, it's a democratic primary process, but it's a democratic primary to be president of the United States. That means that shouldn't it shouldn't just be a gauntlet of democratic progressive interest groups and you only answer questions from them. Uh, A, that's not preparing the nominee well, the eventual nominee well, for the contest that's going to come. And then B, it's just a false reality. Like, yes, do that if they're running for DNC chair. I'm resisting uh, Pete Buttigieg aside there. Uh, So, you know, uh, applaud me for that, those of you listening. Uh, You know, yes, if you're running for DNC chair, then yeah, it should be about... It should be about pleasing all the Democratic constituencies, right? But they're running for president. They're running to be president of the whole country. And I just haven't seen folks get impressed on issues that are going to matter. And look, Democrats are going to feel real dumb if Bernie walks away with this thing and the attacks come on uh, Bernie and we find out that, oh, we didn't press hard enough. But Trump and the Republicans certainly didn't make that mistake. All right. We'll move on. We'll move on from that. Uh, there are so many other things I, I want to say, but but I also want to get you to the interview, which is the most important thing because uh, we have a heck of a guest. I, I guess I'll, I'll just say you know, looking to South Carolina, obviously it's important for the Biden campaign that the vice president wins there. I'm not comfortable saying that if he loses, he absolutely has to drop out because I can imagine scenarios where he's a close second. But, you know, it's like 40, 38, you know, like just massive consolidation happens. judge falls to pieces. Steyer falls to or actually it doesn't matter how Steyer does because everyone knows he isn't going to be the nominee. So honestly, Steyer could be 20 percent. All that to say, I imagine that Biden can come in a very close second and still maintain the status from Nevada as like the leading competition for Bernie. And stay in. I do think that'll be tough. I'm not sure he'll be able to raise the money he needs if he doesn't come in first in South Carolina. But then again, Super Tuesday is just three days from that point. So he might as well stay in from there. But if if Biden doesn't get in second, in first or second, I, th- I think he has to drop out. I, I do think you know, Elizabeth Warren is going to have to take a very close look. I honestly... I'm having a hard time discerning whether her talk about, like, "Oh, I don't look at this race" as, like when I would have to drop out. Uh, I'm I'm here because I'm a I'm a fighter, and I'm just going to stay in the race, advocating for my ideas. I'm, I'm not sure if she really believes that, and if so, like, is it, does that mean you're going to run a campaign as an as a third party to stay in the conversation? Like, does that mean you're going to take Bernie? Like, like if if Bernie sprints away with this thing, are you still going to keep running all the way to the convention? I mean, if anyone, if anyone gets a majority of delegates, does that mean? So, I'm not sure if that's just a line to shut down conversations about her dropping out, or if or if she really believes that. But with a typical campaign, if Elizabeth Warren gets uh, loses. It gets in fourth place. If it's Bernie, if it's Biden, Bernie, Steyer, Warren, I think any other campaign, would be saying it's it's about time you drop out. Pete Buttigieg has to look at these numbers and realize that he has a chance of you know coming up in sixth, seventh, in a bunch of these states. And is that really where he wants to be? Does he does he really want to stay in this race? and lose to Bloomberg, Biden, Bernie, probably Elizabeth Warren, probably in half the states, you know, Amy Klobuchar potentially. Sty- I, mean, I mean, you know, at some point you just got to see, like, is there a path for me? And if not, you know, that means I need to drop out. Yes, I might be able to pick up some delegates, but I'm not running to pick up some delegates. I'm, I'm running to be the nominee. Uh, M- Michael Bennett could... Probably picked up a delegate or two for Colorado, like he dropped out. Cory Booker could have picked up some delegates, not just in New Jersey. I think I think it's possible Booker, if he had stayed in, he'd be performing. He'd have the same number of delegates as some of the other candidates in this race. But this South Carolina finish is is, is primarily about does Biden just swamp Bernie? Does Biden win by ten points or fifteen? Um, which would easily put him in second place. Honestly, I think I'd be surprised if Bernie, if Biden wasn't in second place in terms of delegates by Sunday. Uh, but it's also not out of the realm of possibility that South Carolina puts Biden ahead of Bernie, that, that Biden could go into Super Tuesday on top. And that could be a different kind of thing. I mean, then I think they'll be able to raise a bunch of money. It won't do them too much good for Super Tuesday, but I'm sure the Biden campaign has a plan to execute if if Saturday they get a flood of money. Um, I'm, I'm sure they have they have ad buys ready to go and that kind of thing. Um, but but we'll see. We'll see. Uh, you know, Klobuchar, I think she's winning her home state in polls so far, and it's hard for candidates to drop out if they're they feel like they're going to win their home state. I think you know I'm generally a fan of uh, Klobuchar, so it takes me no pleasure. I, th- I think after South Carolina, she really has to take a clear view of like where where she is. You know, if she tops Buttigieg in South Carolina, maybe that's reason for her to go on to Super Tuesday. If Biden, com- you know, if Biden drops out, then I think you'll see Klobuchar and Buttigieg go on a Super Tuesday, even if you know, I- even if they finish below Biden. And just test whether there's some sort of moderate wind windfall to them. Uh, but I think we're starting to see this this race race consolidate, and we'll see if South Carolina has any 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 surprises in store. Because again, if we get to Super Tuesday, and this race isn't consolidating, then what we're going to have is Bernie begin to rack up a uh, a delegate lead that will just not will, will be harder and harder to surmount so in other words like this race is consolidating and clarifying itself either way uh, either south carolina is going to happen and we're going to know that uh, biden is the the clear challenger to to bernie or he's not and Unless, you know, Klobuchar and Buttigieg drop out and, uh, and uh, you know, everyone decides to support Michael Bloomberg, which doesn't seem like a smart option at this point, um, or like an option any of them <laughs> are, would be super excited about, uh, uh, the, well I have a pretty good sense that Bernie's gonna going to walk with this thing. So we'll see. It's going to be exciting. Look, we we need someone to help us think through what's happening and and, uh, someone on the ground in South Carolina. Oh, man, do I have the guests for that? Uh, I'll tell you about them after the break. This is the Faith 2020 Podcast. All right, we're back. This is the Faith 2020 Podcast. And our guest for this episode is like the primo a-list, top of the heap, A-number one, everything that Sinatra talks about. I <laughs> guess that we could possibly have at this moment in the primary. Uh, and that is Clay Middleton. Uh, now, you, you may not know the name of uh, 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 Clay Middleton, but I've known Clay for over a decade. There was no one that I trust more when it comes to uh, South Carolina politics. Uh, Clay worked on Obama two thousand eight. I knew him uh, as he was serving in the Faith Initiative for President Obama. Uh, he was my colleague there, and that's where we, we really got to know each other, work with one another. Did so much uh, good work, I think, on uh, issues ranging from fatherhood to faith-based volunteerism. Uh, He's uh, he's just an amazing person to work with. He went on to run the state of South Carolina uh, for Hillary Clinton, serve in senior level positions with Senator Cory Booker's campaign. And so I know we talk on this show, we've talked on this show quite a bit about Senator Cory Booker. Uh, I've been very honest about the fact that I feel like what well, we talked about, it. I asked Clay in the interview what he thought, why Senator Booker didn't spark so many of us thought he would. And Clay gives, I think, an insightful answer there. And then something I didn't mention in the previous segment is Congressman Jim Clyburn endorsed Biden today. I asked Clay, uh, we recorded after the endorsement took place, so I asked Clay what, what that's going to mean. Uh, Clay opens up so much. Uh, and I think, just listening to him talk uh unlike the debate Clay's gonna help lower our blood pressure a bit uh get our vision right uh help us uh anticipate what's gonna come uh you're gonna feel good after this interview uh and I'm I'm just thinking this is still the quiet storm (laughs) you're gonna hear Clay and his sultry tones are gonna Put your right to sleep unless you're with your lady. <laughs> oh man, and we better <laughs> we better just get to the interview. Hey folks, hope you enjoyed my conversation with my friend. Really, the, one of the key voices you you want to listen to. Uh, run up to South Carolina, or really any time when the conversation is about is about politics uh, and service. Including military service uh, uh, Clay uh, Is a major in the South Carolina Army National Guard A combat veteran Bronze star medal recipient So, so uh, th- this is someone Look, if you're cynical About folks who serve in government If you're the kind of person who says Oh, there's no such thing as Public service and politics anymore Like Clay is one of those people Who's an antidote To, to, to that, that false belief uh, Clay's a true public servant. Uh, he's been one for a long time. He's going to continue to be one. And so enjoy this interview with Clay Middleton on the Faith 2020 podcast. Well, this is the Faith 2020 podcast, and we have with us my my friend uh, Clay Middleton. Clay, thank you so much for joining the Faith 2020 podcast. Appreciate the opportunity,
1: Michael. Thanks for having
0: me. You know, and I've told folks already, you know, with with a just needed you on the podcast generally but especially with with south carolina coming up uh, there's no one uh, i'd rather be talking to in this moment than you and so just to kind of jump in you know we're recording this on wednesday <laughs> we, we had the debate you know i think there are some other words you could use for it but uh, uh yeah well, what's your well actually let, let's start here what's your basic Sense of the lay of the land in South Carolina. A week out, you worked for. You were involved in, in this race. You worked for Senator uh, Booker. Uh, you you worked for Hillary Clinton in in the state in 2016. There are a few people who know South Carolina better than you. You worked for Congressman Jim Clyburn, uh, James Clyburn, who we'll talk about later in this in this episode. So uh, you, you know, w- just a few days out from from voting. Uh, what's your sense of the lay of the land? What are you looking for in these closing days?
1: Expecting that the candidates uh, would crisscross uh, South Carolina to deliver their message to places that they may have overlooked. I think the major urban areas have gotten great attention, and rightfully so because of the population. But if you are looking to to gain ground or break away, uh, folks should really be uh, going into uh, rural areas uh, that people tend to just uh, drive through, and they should have their surrogates just all over uh, the state in the last few days. Uh, certainly with the debate that just took place, the last debate, uh, this, this would give folks an opportunity who may have missed the debate or have some questions about what they observe um, to uh, to, be, to be able to ask some clarifying questions uh, in person.
0: It seemed clear that some of the candidates had at least one eye on Super Tuesday in, in, in the debate. But as far as South Carolina goes, you know, who, who did you think was most strategic uh, in, in using that debate to reach out? And appeal to to South Carolinians, and and uh, who do you think made made the best use of that opportunity? And then, is there anyone, uh, particularly with the debate, that you think significantly, you know, harmed their 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 uh, status in the state?
1: Uh, so I felt that Vice President Biden uh, did what he needed to do. He, I feel, and especially those that were in the hall. I felt that this was his best debate performance uh, out the previous nine. This was his, his strongest. He was able to use his personal relationships and connections and stories into some of his responses as it relates to South Carolina and Super Tuesday uh, states that are going to follow three days after uh, we, we vote here. I felt that Warren came across as very um not not rude she was just she attacked boomer when she didn't have to she kept going after him and in the room everyone was like ooh what like there was no point you you already attacked him in the last debate uh, so you are ahead in that regard so why why go after him and and i thought it was very interesting the way she was engaging with with Bernie at one point. I thought she was just going to to concede uh, to to him. So I think if she do, does not gain traction based on delegate count, uh, she may may suspend her campaign uh, after Super Tuesday if she's not able to to get on the board. Uh, so it could have been a way for her to let her supporters know and. Bernie supporters know that if, if the end for me comes sooner than I want it to, I would be aligned with, with, with Bernie. I thought that Bloomberg, you know, he's not on the ballot here in South Carolina. I think he did a better job at this debate than, than the last one. Uh, he has a CNN town hall uh, that is approaching. Uh, so he certainly was appealing to those that are going to uh, be voting on March 3rd.
0: Let me ask you a a question we we've tried to answer in previous episodes, but it really is one of the most common things I hear when I'm traveling and when folks are giving their feedback is, you know, I think I have a pretty good sense of why, you know, Senator Harris's campaign didn't pick up steam. Uh, I I think I have a pretty good idea of why why Beto uh, didn't uh, didn't stay uh, where he where he was, you know, before he jumped in. I have some theories about uh, about Senator Booker, uh, but, but none of them are completely satisfying to me, particularly, I, I mean, you can speak to the, the, the national perspective, but uh, particularly when it comes to South Carolina, now that you've had some time to reflect, why do you think Senator Booker didn't get the traction that I think many of us who watch these things closely, you know, always expected uh, that, that there was going to be a moment where he was going to really catch on? I I
1: think people big picture that he was just not getting the uh, airtime that other candidates were getting because he was not the uh, new shiny object. And that's that's why. uh, However, everyone that ever engages with Cory Booker, everyone that ever came to an event, Uh, We had, whether it was in in South Carolina, North Carolina, uh, Georgia, Florida, uh, Texas, uh, Detroit, these are states I've been with him. And anytime uh, folks walked in that room, leaning somewhere else or hell bent on uh, someone else, after they heard Cory Booker, they were now at, uh, they were conflicted.
0: Yeah. yeah yeah yeah
1: but that did not catch on like we like we wanted it to but um
0: sure yeah i do i do think that that aspect of senator booker was such a well-known commodity among political press and and reporters i mean people have been eyeing him as a potential national presidential candidate for over a decade really i mean he's he he really had a remarkable early career that's obviously continued uh and he was kind of in a a bind because like like you said i mean he was old news for reporters but he didn't have the name recognition nationally uh to to sort of make up for the fact that he wasn't going to get the kind of welcome that beto or uh, or you know, round of you know who who is this candidate that Beto or Senator Harris or some of the other candidates uh, receives. So I, I, I think um, really appreciate that 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 insight. Uh, going to another one of uh, sort of the folks that you've worked with, uh, Congressman Clyburn, obviously li- leader for the uh, for the House Democrats and the statesman uh, a statesman in the Democratic Party uh, and for the nation, but you know, uh, really the figurehead of South Carolina, uh, politics, uh, today he endorsed, uh, vice, former vice president Biden. And it was not a, it was not a perfunctory endorsement. Uh, it was, it was moving. He, it it was, it was emotional. He he didn't just kind of phone it in. You could see, well, at least from my perspective, uh, it, it seemed that he was, he was placing a a, a bit of his reputation on the line in a way that he didn't have to. Um, What do you think the endorsement is going to mean for Biden? Is is it something that could be meaningful, uh, you know, just a few days out with early voting already, you know, underway? What what do you think the potential impact could be? It it has
1: certainly helped uh, Vice President Biden, without a doubt. Uh, A lot of people uh, are still undecided in South Carolina and in Super Tuesday states, especially southern ones. And with Congressman Clyburn uh, putting his reputation on the line and really, as as you said, he did not just just phone it in. He was, here's why I am endorsing him, believing him, and supporting him. Uh, That is certainly going to help. So I think those that were undecided in this state, uh, have not they have clarity of what they're going to do over the next few days if they're going to vote early, certainly on Election Day this Saturday. Uh, so and some people thought from the beginning that uh, Congressman Clyburn is obviously he's going to endorse Biden. But that was not uh, a foregone conclusion. Uh, Biden had to earn it. Uh, and Biden had to not mess up because certainly if he had said outrageous stuff, if he had the, if, if his mannerism was out of character, then Congressman Clyburn would, would not have endorsed and that would have, him not endorsing would have been, uh, an endorsement of who not to support.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's right. That's right. <laughs> I want to ask you specifically, you know, this is the faith 2020 podcast. Uh, you know, one of one of I mean, you had such an incredible career and, and been in so many important roles. Where we first got to know each other was with the Faith Initiative in the first term of of uh, uh, President Obama's time in the White House. And so, you know, in addition to I mean, yeah, uh, in addition to the expertise in the other areas we've discussed. Uh, you also have great expertise when it comes to a religious outreach and understanding the faith community. And so, you know, how do you see? Obviously, the Black Church plays a significant role in South Carolina primary. Do you think that candidates are uh, are, are doing what they what they need to be doing uh, to reach out to the Black Church, not as a, not just as a. Get out the vote turnout but but actually engaging in persuasion like do you do you think these candidates are actually speaking to the concerns of the black church and then would welcome you to speak to uh you know South Carolina is probably the first the first state in this primary process that is uh overwhelmingly religious when it comes to the democratic primary electorate and that that you know includes uh uh that that includes mainline and evangelical. Uh, uh denominations as well but 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 yeah, yeah. How, how do you see the candidates doing in the state when it comes to faith
1: not nearly the level that it was in two thousand and eight uh and i i remember that it was an intentional effort that was throughout the campaign from images from the letters to to faith leaders uh to congregation to faith captains it was a it was ingrained into the campaign; it was not a one-off. Uh, so that kind of integration has not happened this time around. And in fact, it was so ingrained that in the general election in two thousand eight, when I uh, joined the uh, o- Obama campaign, um, it it was it was one of those things where that was the first thing you focused on, and I knew that. Going into it, but still, it was it was reassuring that this was going to continue in the general, and it was just not something to be done in the primary in 2016, uh, when I ran Hillary's campaign in South Carolina, and uh, we we were very adamant that we have to have a faith component, and we were able to to do that uh, in 16. Uh, but it did not translate the way that I would have preferred uh, after the primary season. Then when you move into this cycle, our campaign was the first uh, to have a faith uh, outreach director uh, in South Carolina. Uh, we also did uh, prayer calls uh, every week. That was not political in nature. Um, Corey. Fasted several times doing uh, the campaign, which he does regularly anyway. And people were invited to fast with Corey uh, for a variety of, of reasons—maybe uh, because of debate prep, maybe because of a goal that we were aiming for, for you know whatever the the reason was. Then other campaigns started to to do the same thing in terms of having faith outreach, but the level. Of engagement uh, was not as ingrained this cycle of the, like previous, and no campaign; those that are still in have have done that, uh, and, and I, I, I don't understand why. Uh, and hopefully, those that are listening uh, would would change that narrative uh, going going forward.
0: Right, and, and your your point is so important. You you can't just turn the switch on this in in August after the conventions. Uh, your your point that the primaries the primaries lay the groundwork for your for faith outreach in the general to to mean anything is just spot spot on, just exactly exactly right. Uh, Clay, we're we're coming. Uh, I'm not going to ask you for. A prediction or, or anything like that, unless you want to give one. <laughs> but uh, where, where I want to end this is, we uh, would love to just ask you you had a front row seat during the Obama administration to the intersection of faith and volunteerism. Uh, what did you learn about faith in America? during your time working for president Obama. And then, you know, even, even since, as you've, as you've said, you've led intensive, authentic faith outreach, but work in in other worlds as well, but would love to hear you reflect a a bit on um, what that's, what that's shown you about faith in America.
1: We, we have to be engaged. And if someone uh, is is hungry, uh, you have an obligation to feed them. If they are without clothes, you are called uh, to provide clothes. Without shelter, provide shelter. Being in the military, having served overseas uh, as a combat veteran, I was not concerned about the soldiers I led into Iraq, those I've served with over the last 20 years, not worry about their political persuasion. It's about doing our job, that service. That binds us together. So does our faith, regardless of who we call on, Pray too. We are all connected. And when we see something that is, is wrong, when we see someone in need, uh, we are automatically uh, called to help, to be there. And I saw that up close and in, in personal working in the White House Office of Faith Based Navy Partnerships uh, with you and Joshua, and certainly at CNCS. Uh, with John Kelly and, and other colleagues throughout, throughout the centers. And that, that reflection that I just provided uh, just reminded me uh, that we're doing this for a cause greater than ourselves and that we are to live our life as if uh, there is a God Dying, finding out uh, that uh, there isn't, uh, versus living our life as if there's not a God, dying, finding out that there is.
0: Yeah. Uh, Clay, I, I can't tell you enough how much I've appreciated knowing you, learning from you over the years. It was, it, you know, just one of the great honors of my life to, to work with, with you and, and our, our colleagues for, for that season and to see you flourish and continue to lead for your public service, for your military service. Uh, and I'm just so glad that we had this uh, time for this conversation and uh, would urge folks to keep an eye on on Clay Middleton, his his public leadership moving forward. Clay, is there a way that, that folks can sort of stay in touch with you and, and kind of kind of follow what you're doing? Sure. Uh,
1: on Twitter is at Clay in Middleton. Clay and, uh, certainly I am on Facebook, uh, as well, LinkedIn. Uh, so I'm looking forward to, uh, to be more intentional, uh, about, uh, what I am called to do.
0: Yeah, uh, I've seen that intentionality uh, from you, Clay. Uh, thank you again for joining the Faith Twenty Twenty uh, podcast. I I I, uh, I hope our listeners understand that they'll they'll be able to head into Saturday's uh, vote and into Super Tuesday uh, with with a, a much clearer sense of what's at stake and what's at play. All right, thanks so much, Clay.
1: Well, thank you. and and, and if we could, when two or more gather together, we know that the Lord is with us, and we just just ask God to uh, give us the strength, uh, the wisdom, and pray that our leaders, uh, those that are appointed, uh, those that are elected, or those that are called by him uh, to do with us as the Lord. Uh, thank you so much.
0: Amen. Thank you, brother. All right. I hope you enjoyed the interview with Clay. Well, we have, we're have. we going to see if we can do another episode Before Super Tuesday, if not, I want to make sure if we do one that it'll be worth your while. And honestly, I'm just not sure if we're going to be able to record and post an episode between South Carolina and Super Tuesday. And South Carolina is going to be such an important pivot point that it makes most sense. But we'll we'll see what we can do. If not, we'll have an episode up to recap Super Tuesday and talk about what what the fallout from that is going to bring us. All right, this is the Faith Twenty Twenty podcast. I, I, I truly appreciate you listening in, especially as we've moved to these weekly episodes. More and more people are tuning in, and it's just been encouraging. Would ask you to continue to get uh help get the get the word out. I, I do think we broke a little bit of news on on, on this episode with with Clay's insight into how. Faith outreach is developing in this primary cycle, and, that, and that's something that we're going to we're going to dig into more. It's something to keep an eye on. Uh, obviously, a lot of the talk now is just going to be about how the candidates are doing. But as Clay and I discuss, out of this process has to come a nominee who's going to have to go after a well-funded, well-oiled political machine that, yes, is at times dragged down by uh, President Trump, but in other ways, President Trump is a formidable political opponent, and no matter what his approval ratings are it's not going to be an easy easy contest for, for Democrats that's not what polling is showing that's not what common sense suggests when you're dealing with a or a historical president precedent when you're dealing with an incumbent president and so it's it's worth keeping an eye on and hopefully uh, I know many journalists listen to this podcast uh, that, that might be something worth following up on though I know you're Y'all are busy. Y'all are drowning. Uh, you know. Do you know what? Before you follow up on that thread, take a nap, uh, uh, call your your mother, uh, do something that'll <laughs> that'll help you get through what's going to be a very busy, a very busy next few days. All right. This is Michael Weir, host of the Faith Twenty Twenty podcast. But in addition to that, y'all know this episode has been a little little different. So I'll close. Quiet Star through my life. Hey y'all, listen. If if we see a five five hundred percent increase in listens to this episode, I'll I'll bring out my falsetto every episode moving forward. <laughs> hey, take care of yourselves. Be well. We'll talk to you soon.